This episode of The First Feature is sponsored by Musicbed. Just like scouting, filming, and editing, having great music should be an asset to your film, not a roadblock. Musicbed is dedicated to making that a reality. That's why they've completely rebuilt their platform of over 650 world-class artists and composers with brand new features, workflows, and a new checkout process. Want to exclude holiday songs from your search in July? Go for it. Need a folk song that has a guitar but no banjos at 120 beats per minute? No problem. With advanced search features like include, exclude, beats per minute, key, song build, and more, finding the perfect song has never been easier or faster. Get 20% off your next on-site license with coupon code FIRSTFEATURE20. Learn more at musicbed.com new. Again, that's coupon code FIRSTFEATURE20. Welcome to the first feature, a new film school podcast. My name is Ryan Koo, and my first feature is titled Amateur. We're going through all the phases of production, and this is episode six, the first episode that's actually on the production phase. So thanks for joining us, and I'm here with John Fusco. Hello. From No Film School, who last joined us on episode... Two? Three? Episode three? Two episode three? two? Bo- two. Well, two and three. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Making a short. Yeah. And something else that I don't remember. Uh, screenwriting. Oh, screenwriting, mm-hmm. yes. So now we get to, to follow that up with making a feature. So it seems like I'm the resident uh, production expert here at No Film School. Would you say that that's the case? <laughs> Are you asking for a title change? <laughs> Maybe. Resident production expert is my, yeah, should be my official title. Um, but I just say that because last time, you know, we talked about uh, what it takes to produce a short and then kind of went into uh, the day-by-day process of actually being on set for that short and uh, producing it there, being in production. But we never really got into what it uh, takes to actually make a feature. So my first question, and it's going to be a broad question, would be what are the differences between producing a short and producing a feature in terms of pre-production? Like, what do you need to get done to make a feature? Yeah, the, the feature process is entirely different, especially if, for me, coming from doing the amateur short, there were maybe 10 people total on set, and going to the feature, there's going to be 50 or more if you're including extras and basketball scenes and larger uh, set pieces. Also, with the prep for a feature, you're prepping something that you're about to go into however long your shoot is, whether it's three weeks or five weeks or 15 weeks, some, something that you're prepping. You're not going to be shooting for a long time. So the, the unlike with a short where maybe you're only doing it in two days, people will remember what you did during prep. Here you have to be much more organized and much more prepared with everything because by the time you get to the shoot to the shooting process, a lot of times people will have forgotten what it was that you prepped. So, so the organization, the documentation, and everything has to to go to a new level. And for me, also, just this is something where you know we're doing entire, we're creating entire basketball teams, we're we're set dressing entire schools. So there's just so many more decisions that you're making about what is everybody wearing, what do the uniforms look like. Which gyms are there? Um, and then, you know, Liz, Liz and I talked a lot about that in the last episode. But one of the things that we didn't really get to was just the creative side of prep, not just the logistical, how are you going to physically put all the pieces together to make this movie, but how are you preparing with your collaborators creatively? So then, what are the key 
uh, members uh, or collaborators that you uh, met with uh, the most during this pre-production phase? Yeah, I mean, getting away from sort of the, the logistical side, yeah. so much of it is is the DP and the production designer because that's really what you're doing with visual storytelling, which I will now mention episode six is titled something like visual storytelling. <laughs> that's the title is something <laughs> you, like visual storytelling. You can, you can tell we've done a few episodes of this at this point. We're sort of breaking from the, the script. But hopefully if you've listened to the previous episodes, then you're, you're welcoming a break, break from the script. So in terms of the visual storytelling, those are your two main collaborators, your director of photography, your production designer, and hopefully they're people that you've signed on very early. And uh, in my case, Greg Wilson, my DP, was on f- from the short. And we'd had a lot of conversations over the years about what our, our visual configuration of the movie was going to be. Todd Jeffrey joined us later. I met with him in L.A. He came on. I was a fan of his work. But he was there very early as well. And some of the considerations are practical. For example, I knew that in the world of sports that... Oftentimes, there are a lot of very colorful uniforms and gyms and outfits, and we didn't want this movie to, to start becoming primary colors and sort of candy-coated. Like, it's the whole idea of the film is that we're depicting a world realistically and authentically, and in many cases, in, in an understated way. So we wanted to sort of just set the color palette and move away from some of these louder colors, not just with the costumes and the settings but also with lighting and so with Greg part of the conversation was about using mainly pure white lighting sources so that the whole world wasn't becoming garish and and too colorful with all the the various elements that were going on and something that would make it feel very natural and and just keep us with the, the character in a way that we weren't calling attention to stylized lighting. But the overall configuration of the movie, the, the sort of visual starting point that I'd always pitched was that Teron Forte, the 14-year-old protagonist, exists in two worlds. One of them is that off the court, he is not in control of his life, and therefore it's much more of a documentary. It's shaky, it's handheld, it's like cinema verite in a way. And then on the court, where he is in control, where he's dominant, then it becomes much more fluid and elevated and cinematic. And then we start using a whole lot of different uh, camera support devices to to make the movement very different. And so that was sort of the starting point of our visual conversation about how are we going to do this. And once you have that that basic configuration, then you can start moving into some of the more uh, technical decisions. So then when you started storyboarding, uh, was that something you did alone or is that something that you did with your DP, Greg? I think there's the ideal way to do it and then many times there's the way you actually end up doing it. When we were in Denver prepping the movie, so much of what our initial time was spent doing was interviewing local crew members. It's not a, a town where there's a ton of local crew and I think there are actually other movies going at the same time and that we were there, so that made it even even more challenging. And... The other challenge was I was rewriting the script during this process. And a tip to any writer-director is do not try to rewrite the script during prep because the minute you hit the ground in prep, 
your days are filled with meetings and your nights are filled with location scouts and it gets really crazy just in terms of the amount of time that you have to be making decisions and the amount of time that you have to be available to your crew members in order to make those decisions and make sure that everything is prepared for for day one of principal photography so uh with rewriting some some of it based on what locations were available and trying to cut scenes and trying to get the budget down and things like that but also creative decisions um those things were going on. Greg and I didn't have as much time to really dive in on the storyboarding and shot listing as much as we'd like. We were still scrambling for locations. And so what we ended up doing was sort of a blend of we would we would shot list. We would shot list a lot of the dramatic scenes. And then we knew that when it came to filming basketball that a shot list was not going to do. You know, we had to get much more in depth with the choreography of what is this very specific action sequence going to be like? How is it going to feel? What is the move going to be? And to do that, we felt the best way to do it was to actually do sort of the poor man's previs, which is not using computers and and high-end animation software. We just went to a gym with, uh, before my actor hit the ground, it was just me playing Tehran as the basketball player and whoever else on the crew knew something about basketball and could sort of be one of the other crew members and then Greg just had a an iPhone or, or a 5D something and we would just shoot it and walk through it because it's a much more tactile physical space and every basketball court is 94 by 50 you know it's like you don't have to be shooting in the gym that you're going to be shooting in to know where the goal is and, and the fact that there's 10 guys in the court and to have to choreograph all those things so we, we essentially would shot list and if we could we I would do overheads if I knew where a location is um, and an overhead is sort of like a, an architectural uh, drawing of, of where the characters are, where the camera is, what the movement is, what the different camera setups are. And this was an area where I found, I finally found a use for my iPad Pro. <laughs> like, because if you're doing an overhead of a space, the fact that you've drawn it overhead once on the iPad, you can just duplicate that over and over again for different setups and for different versions and drafts. And then you don't have to redraw the space, and just that time savings uh, was was helpful. Um, so, were you actually plotting, like doing light plots there too? Like, were you, or was that something that Greg would do later on? Greg would usually do that later on. This was a movie where we knew that time was going to be so short because of the fact that we had a kid in every single scene. Michael Rainey Jr. is fifteen. The child labor laws state that you only have them for eight and a half hours. Can't be filming after 1230 at night. So the very configuration of the movie meant that lighting was really going to be secondary. And once Michael was there, we were going to hit the ground running and shoot as much as we could. And so we would do the overhead for what we wanted the scene to be and where we wanted all the characters to be and then sort of secondarily plan lighting. One of the ways that we would plan lighting for basketball sequences was essentially we knew we wanted to have a moving camera and that camera is often panning and tracking and doing several things at once. So you can't have a very constrained setting with where your lights are. So we would essentially in that blocking in the gym just with with the actors figure out what is what is the overall requirement of this sequence and is there any place in the gym that we can just block off that we know we're not going to see. Are we never going to see this corner over there? Are we never going to see this part at half court? Then we can have all the lighting equipment in this one area. 
bouncing off the ceiling, doing whatever we need to do so that when we get there on the day, we have as much freedom to move about and make smaller adjustments and not be spending a lot of time uh, adjusting the lights. So the overhead is really about the actors and the camera angles. And then the, the, the sort of previs rehearsal process was about trying to figure out how much of the gym we needed to see and then hopefully anticipating what kind of extras considerations we were going to need because of course if you're panning from this part of the gym to that part of the gym then the whole thing needs to have be full of extras and we didn't necessarily have the money to be able to afford that so sometimes uh, our our best laid plans would would just go out the window when we got there we can only see this one little corner of stands because that's all the extras we had Um, but you know what you want to do I think in general the tip for this this prep previs storyboard shot lining shot listing whatever the process is that you're doing you want to be as best prepared as possible because you're always going to have to end up making changes and throwing things out but at least if some of what you've planned is possible you can at least get through that more efficiently before inevitably having to go to plan b so then i mean it sounds like your overheads are basically what i would use in storyboards sort of like you're picking these angles to shoot from um but it's hard kind of hard for me to wrap around wrap my head around uh exactly how many of those overheads you would need and how you would um sort of designate one as like oh this is a medium shot but we're like you know we're we're seeing a plot from like above of what's going on so are these overheads do you just like write down what the actual shot is and then it's mostly just like a layout of where the camera will be and where the actors will be during that shot yeah, exactly. I mean, partially we're not using zoom lenses, so if a camera's closer to an actor, you can tell that it's a close-up versus you know the widest back at the, right. at the other end of the space. But yeah, we would write down the shot sizes, okay. and essentially what that became is a, is both a shot list and an overhead. Mm-hmm. I think in in retrospect, and I, we we mentioned this during the, the podcast about shorts. I'd like to find a better solution to to storyboarding because I like a moving camera and I like a shot progression, and and with storyboards, you're you're doing it like it's the the 60s and you're drawing an, an arrow on a on a still image it doesn't quite make sense um but one of the things that all of these documents that you're creating they're most helpful not just for you and the story that you're telling but the crew mm-hmm. so that they know what are we doing next where can i be where can my cart or truck not be what's in the shot what is the frame like you know, those things can be really helpful. And I think that because our prep was compressed and because Greg and I were scrambling on so many other things, we hadn't been able to, to storyboard or shot list or overhead or previs every scene in the movie. We had sort of prioritized the ones that we had the biggest questions about that we thought were the most difficult. And also we didn't have all of our locations locked. Mm-hmm. So without a location, it's very difficult sometimes to, to do that because you don't know wh- where you can even... B, you certainly can't do an overhead in that situation. So what were those like challenging uh, shots that you would definitely need the overheads for? I mean, the first basketball sequence in the movie is one where that's the first time we, we make the visual language switch. And one of the ways that we, we did that was not only by the camera motion. Uh, you know, we, we discussed some, th- some ways to differentiate, whether that be one of these is letterboxed and one isn't. One of them is anamorphic and one isn't. But I think ultimately you have to find the way to tell the story without being too overt. And then also for us, anamorphic was just a, a, a situation where we knew time was at such a premium that trying to move the camera quickly, trying to rack focus, the fact that the movie is being delivered in 4K, the, the anamorphic lenses are, are larger and heavier, 
and in basketball we were going to try to be getting up to to a you know a higher speed that ultimately we we sort of we pulled back on the idea of making the more cinematic basketball shot in anamorphic i think in the ideal larger budget world it would have been but we ended up having two different sets of lenses and we'd shoot all the off the court stuff on uh, panavision ultra speeds which are 30 40 years old you know they're very imprecise they have unique flaring characteristics they're uh imperfect and then we shot the on the court basketball action with a different set of lenses and i i don't remember now it was a while ago whether they were primo primes or master primes the cheaper of the two they're both like amazing pristine sharp lenses but we didn't we didn't have the you know the the highest end one we had the one right below it but it still created a very different look and we also graded the two differently in in post which we'll talk about in post-production so just that sort of visual difference um you know we knew that 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 was going to be a big test and the first basketball sequence was one where we wanted to just immediately the first time you see the kid play define the visual language and show that he's been a child off of the court in this movie up until this moment but he's a man on it and this first time it goes slow motion you know you've really got to get that right and so the first shot of him getting the ball off a tip driving in it's you know something where it's it the shot is I don't know, 30 seconds, 40 seconds long without cutting. And so we knew we were going to have to choreograph that and get that right. That's probably the longest basketball sequence as well. So just sort of making sure that each action, you know, I I just use an overhead of a basketball court in that situation. That was easy. But just what each shot was going to be and how it was going to cut together and and what the sequence was going to be, um, we knew that was going to be a big one. I I remember um, in my first couple months of working at No Film School, you would pop out of the office every now and then to go and do like camera tests and equipment tests to uh, see what gear would actually help you create this world on court um, because it's 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 it was such an important uh, thing for you to nail down in the creation the pre production of this movie. Um, what were some of the of the stuff that you tested out, and then what did you ultimately go with in terms of tools that made these basketball sequences so uh, stand out so well? You know, I think that's an area where if you have a your DP on early, if you have a strong bond, if you're your pers- if you have a personal connection to them, as opposed to it's somebody that you're hiring in prep and they're coming off of another movie and they don't have any time and you can't do these tests in advance, that can always help because you want as few surprises as possible once. Once the frame is up on day one, this is a that's a that's a moment where you want to be seeing what you expected. Uh, so Greg and I, both being in New York, we were able to go out to a basketball court and and test out. Uh, at the time, we thought we might be shooting on an area Alexa Mini, which is what Greg owned at the time. Uh, but then it turned out that we were going to be doing this for Netflix. I mean, we were testing some of this before we had financing from Netflix, and Netflix wanted the movie in ultra. HD mm-hmm. and 4K and the Alexa is 3.3. It's, like 3 it's only 3.3. Yeah, it's not. It's not. It's not true 4K. Okay. Yeah. Of course. So, a lot of what we were testing in the earlier days was just camera support equipment. Are we going to try and use a gimbal? Are we going to try and use a Steadicam? What does that look like? And also just frame rates. I hadn't done a lot of shooting at high speed, so in my head, I don't know what 60 versus 120 versus 96. Just to really testing out different frame rates and seeing what how something feels and what we can get away with. And uh, mm-hmm. so that was really helpful because I, I didn't want to go to set and just find out that this didn't feel slow enough and, and um, 
ultimately we once we knew we had the 4k requirement and i mentioned this in the previous podcast we also had a uh, the panavision new filmmaker program mm-hmm. grant once we had all those things lined up then we knew we were shooting on a sony f55 with the r7 4k external recorder which is how we would shoot at up to 120 frames a second in 4k raw to get that really elevated slow motion sort of cinematic look out of it but those early days were really more about the movement of the camera and and just getting on a basketball court and i probably have some of this footage because again it's me it's greg just filming me yeah and and uh actually that, i'm sure in my old age that's, that'll be a great thing to have like, i was like oh look at when i was young and i could make a layup yeah, I was like, oh, he's going to go play basketball right now. I got to be in this office, and he's going to go out in the spring and play basketball. It's beautiful outside. What is he doing? But uh, no one Testing know. 120 <laughs> frames per second yeah. is what we were testing. So we've mentioned like visual storytelling a few times already, and uh, I think we should probably define that. So, Ryan, when we talk about great visual storytelling, what are the elements that a director has at his disposal to achieve them? I think a director has... Uh, at his or her disposal, yes, they have far more elements probably on larger budget later career movies. Uh, in in the case of a, a feature like this, you don't have as much time. I mean, this is debatable. I think sometimes you can make a feature with your friends and you have more days with a smaller crew, and then you can you can do a lot more experimental things visually. You can find the right time of day to shoot at. You know, on a movie like this, we knew by virtue of having a child actor in every single scene and the fact that high school basketball takes place predominantly at night, that we had so many challenges that each scene was going to be, each dramatic scene was going to be fewer setups and less about an elaborate, storytelling style because for me the focus was going to be on performances and that's essentially what you have a choice when it comes into making a movie is are you going to spend your time on visual storytelling including the time it takes the light or are you going to spend your time on working with actors to get performances and that's kind of actually how we were dividing up our production episodes, right? We're sort of doing episode six here is sort of more of like the visual technical side of things. And then episode seven, we'll get into the sort of a day in production, but also working with actors and, and, and that kind of thing. As a director, you have every tool ever at your disposal. And I think what's hard sometimes is communicating that on the page because the, the screenplay is really just dialogue. It's not necessarily that indicative of montage and momentum and whether there's music and what the camera angles are i mean the script itself is such a a a bare document that really what that the prep process is is about building out all that other language which is the most important thing but is also not on the page Um, so for us with the documentary like style off the court we sort of knew that there was going to be a lot of handheld movement and trying to incorporate as much of the camera responding to Tehran's actions as opposed to vice versa. So if he's walking into a room and he stops and he looks at something, the camera's on him and then the camera sees him look at it and then the camera maybe pans over and hits what he's looking at and comes back to him. And just sort of like it's almost like we were we wanted all the dramatic scenes to be like uh, like we were tied to him with an elastic band and really just mm-hmm. following him, him around and responding to that. And then, as I said, elevating the, the, the basketball sequence to actually make the world seemed larger during during the 
the basketball. And we actually, we totally failed on one of these things. Uh, you will not notice in the movie, and we were trying to make it, we were trying to do it subtly, and we did it so subtly that it's totally unnoticeable. There are two dolly zooms in the movie. The sort of classic vertigo or jaws, you know, dolly in, zoom out, or vice versa. Because I wanted the world to feel like it was closing in around him off the court, and I wanted it to feel like it was opening up and expanding on the court. So the first time in the movie he gets to the classroom, there's actually a subtle push-in and the walls get closer, but we did it so subtly that I don't think anyone can notice. And then the first time he gets on the court, you know, the, it's, it's supposed to be the opposite. Um, but I think that's, that's, that's actually a pretty good example of, of what, on a first-time feature, you're trying to do, right? You have all your best intent, and on the day, you're, you're, you're really just trying to get through it. You've got to move on. You've got to make your schedule. So um, the, the key is to have that intent, and hopefully some of the things, you know, turn out as well as, as you'd hoped so that, uh, that you do manage to, to portray the world visually the way you, you want to. I take it you didn't have much time to practice dolly zooms. No, I think that was the first day that there was a dolly on the yeah. set and for both of those shots. And then you do it, and if, if you get, you know, on any shot, if you have five things you're trying to get right on a on an indie feature, if you've got four of them right, you're probably moving on. Oh, yeah. So then what prep can be done to ensure that these visual elements are accounted for prior to production? I think we would have liked to have done more in terms of uh, either actual storyboards or previs, just having more visual el- elements. And then in terms of the equipment, you want to get it there as early as possible so that you've done the equip- equipment checkout and then you can start testing everything to making sure that you have all the... the you know, there's so many different components. They all need to fit well together and talk to each other and you need to make sure that your ACs know them inside and out and, and can build the camera quickly and that it's balanced and that that the uh, if you're using a gimbal, if you're using a dolly, if you're using a tripod, that everything is, is working as it's supposed to. And uh, especially if you're not in a production town, if there's one missing component, it's not like you can just get it there that day. So you want to get the equipment there. In our case, we had a, the package at it from, uh, from Panavision Hollywood. And just, you know, of course, all these huge cases start showing up in the production office, and then it's unpacking it, and suddenly you're aware, we're making a movie. You want to be as visually prepared as possible with the materials, but you also want to be logistically, and, and, and uh, you want to have all the equipment up to speed by the time you start rolling on day one. So was there a time when you ever felt, like, ready for production? Like, do you think the day before uh, you went up there to shoot, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. I feel good about this. I feel like I've done everything I could possibly do to make this movie succeed. No. I mean, we, as I said to Liz last time, as we were going into production, we had a, a, a schedule curveball, and we thought we were filming, I think it was Monday, we thought we were filming the following Wednesday, and uh, then we found out we were filming this Wednesday, and that tomorrow had to be a day off. So, so the last day of prep, I thought I had a week. I thought I had a week and change, but it turned out that I had no time. And, um, you know, I, I think that's just your job as a director or a writer director is not to be the filmmaker of the movie. It's to be the filmmaker in extenuating circumstances. 
as a matter of fact, every job in this world is to, whatever your job description is, it's do all those things in extenuating circumstances. On film, where time is short and everything's going wrong, especially on location shoots, especially on low-budget movies, those extenuating circumstances may be more extenuated. And in this case, it, that's just what you have to do, is you have to be able to roll with those punches and say, well, we're going to make the best movie that we can in these limitations, and it's my responsibility to get it to the finish line and do everything we can, but many times you're not going to have your druthers or that there's going to be a curveball and you're not going to be as prepared as you hoped you'd be. So what are some things that you didn't do in prep uh, this time that you might want to do on your second time around? I would prioritize having a locked or more locked script so that we could do more of the creative prep because we were scrambling so much and, and, and we didn't have all of our locations locked. I mean, that's really a great thing. If you can know where you're filming every scene in advance, then you, A, can do more prep in that location, but also then you're not trying to location scout while you're making the movie. So you were in production and you didn't have all your locations locked yet? Yeah. Okay. It's tough. Yeah. I mean, this, so, so this movie for the crew was incredibly challenging because I've alluded to the fact that with a child actor, you have fewer hours. But what that really means is that what you, the way you normally make a movie is you block, light, shoot. So you get the director, a few key personnel into the set on the day and basically rehearse the scene, feel it out, make some changes. Where is someone, you know, blocking is where is somebody sitting? Where are they standing? Where are the movements? What are the different parts of the scene? And then the actors can go back, can go back to the trailers, go through hair, makeup, and wardrobe. Director can do some prep, can discuss with the DP. The DP is talking to this gaffer and the best boy and getting all the lighting set up. The actors come back, and now you go through your setups and you get the scene. For us, very early on with the assistant director, Dan Taggetts, we realized we couldn't do this movie like you do a normal movie. We basically had no time. We couldn't block light shoot. We had to block shoot, meaning that we would get there beforehand, try to set up all the lights for where we expected everything to be. Then once Michael Rainey Jr., our kid, hit the set, be ready to just start shooting, essentially. I mean, we'd do very little. Director's blocking had to be very compressed. And then we try to get out ahead of ourselves. We can move to the next scene and so on and so forth. We'll talk about that more in production uh, in episode seven. But essentially, this was not a film where you can do things in a normal way. And therefore, it's very difficult on the crew because they're not, they don't have the amount of time they normally have when somebody's lighting to do hair and makeup and wardrobe. And, um, you know, if you don't have locked locations, then they don't know all the things that are going to be going on uh, three days from now. And, and, and you know, for, especially for production design and the art department, they're trying to, to dress locations at the same time that you're shooting in one currently. It's, it's, a, it's a real challenge, but we all knew from the very beginning that this was a movie. One of the reasons it hadn't been made before is, is ha- of how challenging it was going to be to make. And some of those challenges mean that as a director I have less of a uh, I have less of my druthers visually it's definitely not what what's the ideal way to present this scene it's how can we get this in the can logistically and tell the story and have the emotion make sense and be there with the characters more so than it is for me to point the finger at myself as a director and say hey look I, I know what I'm doing here and here look at my elaborate camera setup would you say that maybe uh, shooting 
on location in Colorado and not at home in New York made things more difficult in that sense where you like if you shot this in New York do you think you could have found those locations do you think maybe you could have had rehearsals with the actors beforehand uh so that maybe some of that stuff was more prepared in terms of blocking or uh the emotional beats that you were trying to hit I think it's completely a give or take you you give up some things and I think shooting in New York or LA would have been far more expensive so it was off the table for us, right. really. You yeah. know, that was a discussion that we had as, as producers was just, well, we know that we're pushing the limit here on what's possible. We're trying to make a movie that the number of scenes and locations and extras and action and all of the components are very high. So for us, Colorado was more about being in a place that we thought we could get some extras and that it wasn't a production town. So we weren't going to be in competition with a bunch of other movies going at the same time. And um, it, it's, it's almost not even an, uh, an option to have said, what would it be like if we filmed this in a production town like New York or L.A.? Because I think we would have, we just didn't have that, the budget to, to do it with uh, in one of those places. For a first time feature, this was a very large movie. Totally. It's not a very large movie, period. But for somebody who had made a web series and a short, and you're, you're talking about, a movie that's going to fail or succeed based on a lot of directorial uh, things in the directorial tool- toolbox because it's it's performance, it's action, it's cinema, it's music, it's emotion. Um, you know, it's not a... There's a lot of scenes in it. So for us, that was really sort of the consideration was just how can we do it? There's, there's, there's no ideal way to do it, but just can we do it at all? And <laughs> if so, where? Well, yeah, there's so many moving parts that you gave yourself uh for your first time directing uh, i mean the least of which was having a kid be your lead um what were some of the tools that kind of like kept you on your your visionary path while you were actually in production to sort of maintain that visual style that you wanted to create again this is really where i found the ipad to be a really helpful tool um in some cases in life it feels like it's sort of stuck between a cell phone and a computer and the computer is really where you're productive and the cell phone is what you have with you all the time. Uh, with an iPad though, it's, it's the perfect size, first of all, for a screenplay, right? You don't have to reflow it. It's there. You can mark it up. Uh, but it's also a sophisticated tool that has a connection. So you can be emailing things. If you, if you do a rewrite, you know, you can use apps. There's the mobile version of final draft and you can send that off to the, the ADs and have a new pages out to people. Uh, I did overheads, as we talked about. I ended up just using a, an app called PDF Expert, which was uh, just a, a way that I was syncing all of the different call sheets and script revisions. And it has some basic drawing tools. There's probably a much better way to do overheads, but I just wanted to make sure that everything was in the same place and that I had everything with me at all times. And by just having an iPad and not having folders of documents, I found that that was a way to do it. I do wish that film production was a little more uh, 21st century and digital because I still see a lot of paper flying around and sometimes um, you know everyone has their cell phone with them but then there's they're walking around with printouts and yeah um, so I I as a as a the digital entrepreneur was surprised at how paper-based a lot of production is but the iPad also in addition to being able to do overheads and having all your call sheets and making sure that you have everything with you including notes to yourself whatever it may be, it also has a camera on it and therefore you can use it as a director's viewfinder mm. and 
there are several apps. There's there's Artemis. I remember I had CadRage on my Android phone at the time. But the one that I used was called 5D. Uh, no, it wasn't called 5D. It was called Mark II. The 5D Mark II was a camera. I'm talking about the Viewfinder app called Mark II. Confusing. And the reason I liked that was that it, you could bring your, your, your iPad up and it has all the demarcation of all the different uh, focal lengths, lens sizes. And so I could load in what our lens set was and then be able to get to a place and uh, frame up a shot and say, oh, this is a 50, this is a 40, and so on and so forth. Of course, you can get a, a legit director's viewfinder and some of the small ones that you hang around your neck. Uh, the real way to do it is to get a viewfinder and then you attach your lens, but sometimes if your lenses are large, you've got this unwieldy hand cannon and you've got you've got to have the AC nearby to be able to fly a lens in and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's like time right there. Exactly. So for us, you know, that would be the ideal way to do it. I mean, if you have a zoom, then you can hit the different focal lengths yourself and that way you actually get what the depth of the field of the shot is going to look like. So we, we sort of did both. Um, if it came time to just get there and on location in advance and call out the shots, I was just using my iPad. And then once we had actors or stand-ins and, and we're trying to actually frame up a shot, then Greg and I were using more of like a real director's viewfinder. But ultimately, the iPad was something I found to be really, really helpful. And then by the end of the shoot, I had actually devised some sort of uh, mechanism because there don't seem to be a lot of... Uh, cases with shoulder straps out there because you look lame if you walk around with an iPad like a, like a messenger in. bag yeah exactly so eventually but n- but not in a bag I just strapped the iPad to myself because I always wanted it with me and there were times where I'd leave it on a bench somewhere and I'd be over on the other side of the the, the location and it wouldn't be with me and then uh, we would lose that one minute that it took me to right. go back and get it yeah. so eventually I just I was like you know what uh, yeah I'm gonna take the I'm going to take the lump and you might as well look like I have a fanny pack on or something. Let's do this. But that's even worse with paper because it's like you left your paper somewhere and that's a lot harder to find because your paper is worthless. Your iPad is worth like 700 bucks. So you're going to keep an eye on that at least at all times. And everyone has the same exact piece of paper. So you don't really know which one is yours or maybe someone picked yours up by mistake. Uh, when you're and looking- your pa- Yeah, your, pa- your paper's not backed up in the cloud. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing I will say is I've since discovered this. I didn't know it at the time. One of my biggest challenges with this was being the writer, writer writing new pages of the script throughout production, issuing those new pages, but then trying to keep track of my notes to myself, which were sort of more of like the PDF mode in terms of if you shot lined, if you've made it, you know, whatever you've, notes you've made on the script, getting them onto the new version of the script, you can get into document versioning hell. And after we wrapped, I then discovered an app called Scriptation, which I have not yet used, but I know they use it on TV shows. And what it does is if you've shot lined, if you've highlighted, if you've made notes in a PDF and then you have a new version, it will intelligently recognize what is the same in the new draft versus the old draft and try to keep all of your highlights and shot linings and notes current on the things that are not changed. So that's something where I think one of the best things about making your first feature is there are so many learning experiences where you can't wait to make your next movie because you learned this valuable lesson in a way that you weren't able to correct something or go to the next level during production. And on the next movie, you're like, oh, I can't wait to use that. So that, so scriptation is something that I found, of course, after rap. It was pretty new at the time when we shot it. Sounds too good to be true to me. Hey, you know, uh, it's better than it's better than what I did, yeah. which was... Which was <laughs> Ring, you know, pull my hair out looking at different versions of PDFs, trying to keep track of my notes. Time again. You know. So yeah, I mean, I, you know, obviously pro pro iPad, and I actually did use the, the Apple Pencil because when you're doing overheads, it's it's helpful to be precise and um, 
I mean, my diagrams were still incredibly ugly. You know, no yep. no director's diagrams or drawings should be should see the light of day if anyone wants to take them seriously. Unless you have a great storyboard artist. But storyboarding, if you're going to work with a storyboard artist, I mean, you could be storyboarding a movie for a year. And if you're prepping a movie in a few weeks and you're doing everything all at once, like there's just, you know, there, there's no uh, there's no time to do that. Yeah, I mean, you want to be, I think ideally... You want to be at least in a space where you can work on those storyboards alone, you know, or, or with your DP or with, or your, with your storyboard DP. artist. But yeah, exactly. Not not when you have the phone ringing and you have all these other meetings and you need to go on a location scout, right? And you're rewriting exactly. the movie. Yeah. And then the other thing that we had on set is when we'd shot those versions of previs, right? Like the the basketball sequence where we're filming it. We'd be able to bring those up once we got to set and and show them to people and say, "This is what we're trying to do." And that would help us because when we rehearse those things, not only is it a camera movement and the, the principal actors and the, the basketball choreography of that, but then to show that to, for example, we hired Rudy Martin, a local high school basketball coach, to be our basketball coordinator. If you can show him what you're trying to do, then he can look at it and say, oh, okay, I understand that this is what the camera's doing. Therefore, the background, the other players on the court need to be moving around that, and then they would be coming through the shot here and there. So those were really helpful to have, but I would just say that you need to make sure that all of those files are properly labeled to the scene number and that you have them offline. Because in some cases, we'd, we'd say, bring in the laptop and show us that shot. And then it was like, what shot? And... It, you're you're staring at a, a loading icon, but you do bring up a good point, which is like uh, so much of about this establishing this visual language is actually about communicating the visual language to like your crew and even I guess to an extent your actors, just so that everyone is on the same page about the what visual language you're trying to create. Um, because then it's also there's less onus on you as a director to have to do all of this yourself like you can have your AD and your DP and your gaffers and like your production designer uh, keep you in check and make sure that your vision is really being fully you know communicated through the screen and and your script supervisor if the plan yeah. is set in advance can say you haven't gotten this yet whereas if you're you're making it up on the fly then it's really on you as the director to, to be constructing it in your head and then coming up with you know what we don't have is this shot, and you might be good at that, but are you going to be good at that when you've been working a hundred hour weeks for four weeks straight? Maybe, maybe not, maybe not as Man. as good. So um, that that was definitely a learning lesson for me, having been more of a DIY filmmaker, where as the DP I could walk on the set and just move to where I wanted to be and do the do the move that I wanted to do, and you know block with the actors, and, and it was that. DIY style of filmmaking is much less about communication because you're just doing it off of instinct. And when you're moving on to a larger set, as you said, that that kind of prep and the, that type of documentation is as much for everybody else as it is for the for the actual storytelling itself. Yeah, I mean, it's like coming back to the basic things that you know you need to create a movie. One of them is a lookbook, and like if you have that lookbook, and if that lookbook is strong enough where you can actually like give it to your crew and like point at it and be like, this is the visual language that we're trying to communicate. Um, that's also extremely helpful, I, I found. So then we talked a little bit about the iPad, but what other tools did you use to actually execute your vision while you were on set? Yeah, I mean, obviously one of the things as directors, you, you, you get on the set and the audio 
your sound guy is going to have a Comtech, which is the, the, the headset that, that you have attached to the audio. Um, one of the bigger decisions is how are you as a director with your preferences in terms of video village? Some movies, especially those that are doing a lot of green screen or special effects, that can get pretty extensive. And, and Video Village is, is where the monitors are, and it's where you can see what's coming from the camera, either wired or wirelessly. And I think for me and for a lot of directors, sometimes that's pretty far away from the actors. So I prefer not to be at Video Village. Some directors go so far as to not even look at the image. They, they set a frame with a DP, and then they just go and stand next to the camera and just watch the actors with their bare eye. That's probably easier if you have a, a more static or repeatable shot. For us, we were doing a pretty documentary-like visual style. So so Greg, the DP and camera operator, was going to be hunting sometimes, and so I felt like I needed to I needed to see what the shot was communicating. I mean, that's how the audience is going to experience the movie. So I'm, I'm not the, the naked eye actor observer, but I do want to be as close as possible. So I would often just have a handheld monitor, and then everything was wireless. We had a Teradeck and or parallax and then just being able to roam where i wanted and have that monitor on me it, it allows you to be as close as possible it can be a little bit harder on your back because you've got to attach a big battery brick to this thing and then you're carrying around carrying it around all day i recently saw someone else's behind the scenes footage and i saw the director had a like a neck strap on theirs and i remember thinking like wait why didn't i i was, <laughs> I was just freehanding this thing the whole movie so yeah maybe get a strap on that just like the ipad and um, <laughs> heck, I'm sure that there are there are apps out there that let you use your iPad as a director's monitor. Yeah, that's and, what I was going to ask. You know, then you're probably going to be running out of battery in that thing through, over the course of the day. Definitely, this is another consideration. Um, but yeah, so that was sort of another thing. And then when it came to the basketball sequences, we you know, we opened up a whole new world of of uh, just just sort of camera support. You know, most of the movie, the the visual configuration is for the dramatic stuff, it's mostly handheld. And Tehran is a character who loves being in motion and loves, loves being free and loves basketball. So we didn't, I don't think there's a single tripod shot in the entire film. We didn't want it to be static. We always wanted it to be moving, even if it was subtly, even if it was imprecise and ha handheld. So most of the, the, the dramatic stuff is handheld or some variant of it. We ended up using a lot of what we called a butt dolly. We just took a tripod spreader, put an apple box on top of it, and then Greg would be sitting on it with the camera handheld on his shoulder and using his feet to sort of maneuver and roll around if it was on a basketball court or a hard a hard floor surface. So it's just like a, it was a box on a like on wheels essentially yeah. <laughs> yes a <bo> <laughs> a, sorry a box on wheels again this is another one of those things that just like the director's drawings that maybe maybe you don't want that in the behind the scenes footage it looks it looks pretty janky we tried some other versions too you can get basically the stool off of a dolly and you can have that on wheels um but but it, we wanted it to feel handheld but not super shaky cam where it where it becomes distracting it we want it to feel more like what your viewpoint would be if you were walking yourself which is there's some shake to it but it's not um right. it's not getting blurry and not not like drunk walking yeah exactly yeah. and so what we wanted to do for the dramatic scenes even though most of it's handheld we wanted it to mirror Tehran's confidence so there are times where it goes steady cam and if he's feeling a certain way 
the movie smooths out, if he's feeling confident, if he's if he's getting hyped about something, you know, like like when he walks into the the stadium in the film, it's a it's a ninety second steady cam oneer, and that's the dramatic scene. It's not a basketball scene, but it's sort of making the transition from one world to the other. So we definitely used uh, Steadicam as well. And Joel San Juan, our Steadicam op, was a champion on this movie. I mean, Greg, we were using Greg so much as the DP, and he's doing a ton of handheld camera operating. So Joel had to fill in, and, and so many other roles. But just is a, a rock solid Steadicam operator. With you know, it's such a technical job. If you don't get your horizons right, the whole thing can be ruined. And and so. We had him on for the run of the show and um, really just used a lot of Steadicam and a lot of handheld. And then once we got into the basketball, then there became a whole nother set of uh, camera movement devices. What were those devices? <laughs> Steadicam a lot. And then, and, and you know, Steadicam, you have high mode, low mode. We wanted to test out various other devices, whether it be a gimbal or some of the things that we've seen at NAB that maybe gave us more high-low flexibility. Mm-hmm. Airy makes one. Uh, is it Mark V? Alien Revolution. There's another one. Basically, there's cams that have these, this sort of sled and a longer arm that can go from low to high. But yeah. A lot of, a lot of <laughs> manufacturers are making that now. Yeah. And, and so we, we were interested in testing those, but again, we wanted to go with the movie being an eye-level depiction of what Tehran's world is like. So the, the way that we would have used that would, would have been if he jumped, then we were able to sort of boom up with him. But again, time was a real consideration and sort of the, for the similar reason that we didn't go with anamorphic lenses, we weren't going to try something that we, we weren't already an expert with. Um, mm-hmm. And so when it came to basketball, the other things that we brought in in terms of moving the camera, uh, in addition to handheld, butt dolly, Steadicam, high-low. We then also brought in a dolly, and thankfully, basketball court is a smooth surface. Yeah. So we didn't have to lay track. We wouldn't have had time to wait to lay track. And then if we really wanted to get up to an even higher speed, because the dolly is obviously heavy, and the acceleration and deceleration is part of what makes it so smooth, but it's also not something that you can, you can quickly accelerate or decelerate, at least not with... Uh, without more crew or devices, you know, if, if we had money, we would have had a doggy cam and this thing that, you know, Greg Wilson, my DP shot, uh, famously shot this uh, cheetah running at 75 miles an hour or whatever it was. And they set up this camera to get it up to speed on a doggy cam. And the camera's going 75 miles an hour, but that's, you know, that's a really elaborate shoot for one shot, essentially. And yeah. for us, we're trying to go through pages on a day. So um, the other thing that we built was a rickshaw, which is two larger wheels and one wheel in the front. It's lighter. Uh, it can get up to speed faster. You can have somebody handheld on it. You can have somebody on a steady cam mount on it. But the thing you have to keep in mind is what are your, your uh, turns? You know, with a dolly, you can sort of continually turn, change directions. With a the rickshaw, there's, the wheel is more like... Uh, like a shopping cart wheel. So if you want to, you have to sort of stop and pivot. You can't just go forward to back as easily. Um, so all of these different camera movement devices are in the movie, and hopefully you don't notice any of them. Uh, it's not, you know, something where there's there's really, um, there's drone shots. There's something that's really calling attention to itself, but it's really just about the smoothness and the speed with which we're moving that we were trying to tell a story. 
and trying to tell a story as it relates to the character. I mean, the whole thing is about getting closer to how this character is feeling, not just for the sake of, you know, is the camera smooth? Does it look cool? Is it slower? It's, it's you know, his power and his emotion is, is really what it was all about. Right. And I mean, this brings us back to the very beginning of our conversation where we're like, you know, how do we, more than how do we establish different worlds? How do the choices we make with our gear and our equipment actually reflect aspects of the character's personality? Um, and like, how can they actually be used in a way that drives the story further um, so that you're really taking advantage of the medium of film to its fullest extent? To that end, we knew we were going to have slow motion throughout the movie. And a lot of that is about the basketball action and seeing what's actually happening and, and how he feels about it and the emotion on his face. But there's a sequence in the movie, and by this point in the podcast, I hope you guys have seen the movie. It's epi- We're more than halfway through the podcast. It's out there on Netflix. There's a, a scene at the end where we brought in a phantom camera for one day, and Greg has shot a lot of high speed with Vision Research's Phantom Flex 4K, and because of no film school, I also have a relationship with them. So we needed a favor from them, and we'd already, ha- you know, we already had favors from from Sony and the grant from Panavision and G Technology uh, was kind enough to supply us with hard drives. And I will say that if you're shooting 4K raw, you need a lot of hard drives. Yeah. If you're shooting 120 frame per second 4K raw, you need a lot, a lot of hard drives. <laughs> it's a lot of data. So thank you, G Technology. But we brought in a phantom camera as well. So we did that for one scene, the last scene in the movie. And what I wanted to do was to get above 120 frames per second and not to focus on the basketball action itself with the extra speed, the ability to slow it down even more, but to capture the emotion of this kid at this one particular point in his life feeling a joy that we've built up to and to use a high-speed camera not to show what it looks like when a bullet goes through a water balloon or you know, any of like the really cool-looking stuff, but just the, the maximum moment of human emotion and to use a high-speed camera on his face and the parents' faces and the other kids' faces to really underline those moments. So we did have a phantom for one day, and we used it there, and again, that's that was for storytelling purposes, not for this is going to be cool cinematography to look at. It's for the character and what he's feeling. Well, I think that's a good place to stop for now because on our next episode, we can really get more into what you can do as a director to try and, uh, for lack of a better word, provoke <laughs> these actors into giving great performances. Um I say that as a one-time actor myself. Um, and Sounds I, like you've been provoked. Oh, it's all about provocation. <laughs> that's all. That's <laughs> You don't really even need to listen to the next episode now. <laughs> oh, so you're one of those directors, huh? I, no, I don't think so. But uh, there were a lot of uh, past teachers uh, in my life that would uh, definitely try and poke, prod me yeah. to get performances. And Well, that's my favorite part to talk about. I mean, obviously, in no film school, we've talked a lot about cameras and the visuals and and this episode was less about what is production actually like but it was you know it was more about what are the tools and the visual storytelling styles and and prep and all of that but but next time we'll be 
will be in production itself in terms of what is a day like, how do you get performances from your actors, how do you make your day and reschedule and, and really sort of the nuts and bolts of it, which is my favorite stuff. Me too, Ryan. Oh, that's right. You're an actor. Me too. Not not anymore. Thank you all for listening to episode six of the first feature. Amateur is on Netflix worldwide. Go check it out. Every episode of this podcast is at nofilmschool.com slash first feature. We have plenty of other podcasts. We've said it plenty of other times on this show, so we're not going to say it again. But uh, please make sure you're subscribed. And uh, next time, episode seven, production. I, I titled it A Day in the Life. Directing actors. We don't even know what the title is. <laughs> Stay tuned. Thanks for listening. <laughs>